Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. Those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. If you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or help support the work they're doing, please visit their website, which will be linked in the show notes below. I can tell you they are incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence, and I hope you'll check them out, sign up for the newsletter, show them some love. Uh, They make the show possible, and we certainly appreciate that. Anyway, welcome to the program, My Huddled Masses. I'm the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. So grab yourself a cup of coffee, and let's get into it. Except for me, I'm not having coffee tonight. I am having a Red Bull, because as soon as I get done recording, i got to do my show notes, ship them off to my producer, and then I am hitting the, uh, the road and driving to Dallas, where I'll be flying to Chicago first thing in the morning. So... That's um, that's how I'm gonna be handling things this evening. Um, so let's uh, let's get into it. We're we gonna talk about. So we're gonna talk today about China. And I know we've already done an episode on China um, that was a little bit more of a, you know, it was it was more about Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party and all the the wiles and evils of all that. But tonight we're gonna talk about it from the. Uh, you know the simmering Pacific conflict at a, at a more national level, and you know, namely for all of China's might, she does have one crippling Achilles heel that they've been trying to solve for decades. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about this evening. Now, I will say, for the record, we'll probably be doing an episode in the near future on why Russia and China are doomed lovers who are eventually going to have their own conflict. Um, I've been doing a little bit of research on that, and I think um, there's some stuff there, so we'll probably do a show about that. And, uh, you know, as always, if you guys um, have any suggestions or anything you want me to go on about, by all means, uh, feel free to hit me up. Um, But for tonight's topic, we're talking about China. So we talked before about the nine-dash line, which, just to give you the briefest of recaps, is their rather generous, shall we say, um claims on the South China Sea. So basically every nation, and there's about seven or eight of them that have a border with the South China Sea, all claim fairly more or less recognized international boundaries that um, that are kind of all part of the the UN, uh, you know, nautical rules of the road, as it were. Uh, You have 12 miles of territorial water, 12 nautical miles, and then it goes out 200 miles um, straight off the coast, which gets you your um, exclusive economic zone, and then beyond that, you get into international waters. Well, with China, um, they've just said, fuck all that. We're claiming 
pretty much all of the South China Sea, regardless of anyone's territorial waters or exclusive economic zones. Uh, so basically what they've done with the nine-dash line is they've made a, a series of dotted lines on a map that encompasses about 90% of the South China Sea, and they say, yep, all of that is ours. And again, I go into a bit more detail in a, in a previous episode, so if you want to get um, more of that, go back there and, and listen to it if you haven't already. But in a nutshell, that is what the uh, the nine dash line is now naturally the u.s has insisted on conducting freedom information uh, freedom of navigation patrols through the south china sea with increasing frequency starting under president obama and then being enhanced and continued under presidents trump and biden and this has caused a number of tense showdowns at sea between the u.s navy and the people's liberation army navy of china because obviously they need everything to be the People's Liberation Army slash Navy slash Air Force slash whatever. It's a ridiculous naming convention, but that's just how communists do. Anyway, so the U.S. had this scheme where they were going to start sailing ships through what we defined and what most of the world defined as international waters, regardless of whether or not China considered it to be um, territorial or economically exclusive zones. If most of us think the South China Sea is international water, we're going to sail through it regardless. And oftentimes... Chinese naval ships will come really, really close, very close to ramming, or they'll cross in front of the ship and force the U.S. ship to veer off course at the last minute uh, as opposed to ramming them. And it's basically just a really dangerous game of chicken with billion-dollar warships like any responsible government would be playing. So this is kind of the situation that's been brewing down there. Now, one of the things China's done, and again, I talked about this at length elsewhere, so I'm not going to go into it, as in depth this time, but China has, um, you know, started building an entire chain of islands in the ocean out of basically nothing, and then covering them with military bases and weapons. And um, they're really doubling down. And part of what they have kind of pulled with this scheme is by building an island that didn't exist prior, planting their flag on it, they then get to say, even by UN uh, law or UN rules, that, well, hey, it's our land, so we automatically get territorial waters around it. So that's kind of how they've manhandled and forced their growth into the South China Sea, despite the fact that um, there was nothing there before. Now, we're going to get into um, why it is they're so really just hell-bent on having the South China Sea, which, again, we've talked about before, but we're going to do it a little bit more here. But, um, yeah, this is, this is not a good. Now, you might be asking, you might be asking, why does China give such a massive fuck about the South China Sea? Well, there are several reasons. Um, the first one being that without claiming uh, all or most of it, China's navy is pretty well boxed in by the U.S. and her allies and has no safe or particularly easy way to access the wider Pacific Ocean. So if you look at a map, uh, most of China's coastline is boxed in by, by Japan, and then further to the south, you, uh, south, you've got uh, Taiwan and some other places that are allied with the U.S. And really, the only way where their navy can very easily break through to the rest of the Pacific and to the world's oceans beyond is through the South China Sea. And so obviously, if the U.S., um, they need to turn that into a Chinese pond, effectively, so that they can move about it fairly freely, get to the oceans, because otherwise they're just caged in. So from a strategic standpoint, that makes complete sense. Now, the other thing that China 
really, really cares about in this regard is the substantial natural gas reserves that were found within the South China Sea in the past couple of years. And you'll note that they really started pushing this narrative of um, the nine-dash line kind of right after uh, all those those natural resources were discovered. And that's going to be a big player here in a little bit, so, you know, hang tight. But... But yeah, you know, they they want to make sure they have access to those resources and no one else can explore them or, or um, take advantage of them or anything like that. But the single most important reason why China cares so much about the South China Sea, in my contention, is because it is the corridor by which the entire country of China has its single greatest weakness. And that weakness is the Straits of Malacca which is located in the southwestern part of the South China Sea. Now, if you don't know what that is, Google it, look at it on a map and understand where it's at. But basically, what it is, is it is a set of straits that allow you to get from the Indian Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, and specifically the South China Sea portion of the Pacific Ocean. And it's the shortest possible route for ships going from anywhere in the Indian Ocean into the Pacific. There are other ways, but it's basically going through really congested um, sets of islands or going all the way around Australia. Um, the most direct, cheapest, most effective, most obvious way is just straight through the Straits of Malacca. Now, it's tricky because the Straits of Malacca are quite narrow. They're only about a mile and a half wide at its narrowest point. And this mile and a half wide strait is effectively the Death Star exhaust port to China. That's what it is. This is the thing that would shut them down. And this is why they care so much about the South China Sea, because right now, if this is all international water, then this single point is in control of pretty much anybody that's not them. And to give you an idea of why this strait is so important, $3.5 trillion of global trade passes through the Straits of Malacca every year, including two-thirds of China's entire trade as well as one-third of all worldwide trade. One-third of global trade passes through the Straits of Malacca. Keep in mind, if oil is being shipped to the United States, there is a really good chance that it's coming out of the Persian Gulf, across the Indian Ocean, through the Straits of Malacca, into the South China Sea, the Pacific Ocean, and to the U.S. West Coast. The other route you can go is around the Arabian Peninsula, up the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, through the Mediterranean, and across the Atlantic. But the point is, these are both major, major chokeholds, and only one of those gets you to China, and it's only a mile and a half wide, which makes it a very strategically valuable place. So, with so much of world trade tied up here, this is a big deal for China. And to, to give you a further idea of its, its importance to China, 15 million barrels of oil per day and one-third of all liquid natural gas natural gas, pass through the Straits of Malacca. Now, keep in mind that for all of China's amazing advantages they have right now, 75% of China's entire oil consumption comes from oil imported, and the majority of that 75%, the vast majority of it, comes through the Straits of Malacca. China does not have the domestic production capability to be energy self-sufficient. Not even close, and we'll talk about that more in a second. But the point is, if the straits were to be blocked, 
China's entire economy and eventually society would collapse if those straits were blocked for a long enough period of time because there's no other good and safe route to get energy and goods into China if it's coming from anywhere that's not the west coast of the United States. And in the event there's a conflict between us and China, us being the U.S. in this case, odds are good there's not going to be stuff coming from the west coast that they want, right? So this is why China has to be very, very cautious with nearly three-quarters of all their energy coming through the Straits of Malacca, that is the natural stranglehold if you were to get into a war with China, how you would stop them. So, that's the situation there. Now, China's been pushing its territorial claims further and further and further and further, right up to the opening of the Straits of Malacca in an attempt to secure it. And one has to keep in mind that China is one of the larger domestic energy producers or oil producers in the world today. I think they're like sixth uh, in the world. They're hovering right around the same amount of production as Iran now, uh, or Iraq, I believe. But keep in mind, that's not even close to all the actual energy that China needs with its massive population. Now, keep in mind, back in the 1970s and the 1980s, China was not only oil independent, but they were actually an oil exporter. They were, in fact, one of the larger exporters to Japan just across the way. But also back in the 70s and 80s, China only accounted for 1.6% of the global economy. But as China's growth began to see explosive exponential growth year after year after year after year for the past 30 years, um, that wasn't sustainable. China doesn't have quite the depth of resources, the proven reserves to actually sustain itself with this population, with this much growth, with this much economic output. They just don't have the natural resources in China to handle that. So what you wound up with is by 1993, they started for the first time having to import oil to maintain their economic growth and to fuel their growing middle class and lower class and even the upper class. And ever since 1993, China has not been energy independent. Now, <clears throat> one thing to also keep in mind is that they became the largest consumer of energy in the world by 2009, and the second largest importer of petroleum by 2011, only behind the United States. Now, for those of you that go, oh God, we're, you know, we import just as much as China. Well, no, keep in mind before you freak out, keep in mind there's there's a whole conversation to be had, uh, and for all my oil and gas people to listen, I, I know you guys already know this, so this is not for you. But for those of you that are a little worried that we import that much oil, keep in mind there's some economics behind the type of oil we produce versus the type of oil we can easily refine here. And so it's kind of a oftentimes a little bit of a balancing out just what's the cheapest thing to refine versus what we produce and where we can get it and the economics of moving oil around. Uh, it's a whole conversation. Hit me up offline if you want to talk about it, or better yet, talk to, to an oil and gas professional, and they can walk you through the whole thing. But the point is that at that time, China became the second largest oil importer in the world. And China does not have nearly the production that the United States has because we have way more vast uh, natural reserves and so on and so forth. Now, <clears throat> in 2011, uh, we already covered 2011, um, in 2016, they became the single largest importer of liquid natural gas, LNG. Um, well, that happened actually in 2021. They became the head uh, importer for oil in 2011, excuse me. So 
keep this in mind, China's domestic production only supplies 20% of its 1.4 billion person economy. Okay? The country of China consumes 25% of all energy used by the human race every year. That's right, a quarter of the energy on planet Earth is consumed purely by China. So with all that energy consumption, keep in mind that 80% of China's uh, imported hydrocarbons, 80% of their imported hydrocarbons pass through the Strait of Hermas, which is a tricky shit show of its own between the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean, where everybody and their brother has a military base, including China. It goes through the Indian Ocean, through the Straits of Malacca, before making landfall in China, which means there are two extremely dangerous choke points between the vast 80% supply of China's energy and the hungry economy that it must fuel and its source of origin. So if you're China, you're looking at this realizing that this mile and a half straight is the biggest crippling weakness that you have. And naturally, this takes us to Taiwan. Now you may be going, how the fuck did that get us to Taiwan? Well, let me tell you. Now, for those of you that don't know, Taiwan is a country, some would call it, that operates pretty much independently. It has its own international relations, its own military, its entirely independent economy. But China still claims that it's little more than a rebellious province. And if you call it a country, China will uh, smoke the shit out of you for saying that. Just ask uh, John Siena. Now, China's explicitly said that it will reassume control of Taiwan by any means necessary, including the use of military force. And assuming that this happens, it would be very likely to draw the U.S. into a conflict. Now, aside from our defensive pact with Taiwan and our general desire to contain China and have at least some level of access and control to the Straits of Malacca ourselves, the U.S. would have to get involved for an even more pragmatic reason. And that is that 50% of all semiconductors on planet Earth are produced in Taiwan and Taiwan alone. No one else has the technology or the fabrication facilities to the same degree or capability. And for those of you who think, okay, fuck it, semiconductors, man, I don't care about that shit. Well, you do. Because if you're listening to this podcast, you're using a device that has semiconductors, okay? Everything from the microphone to the headphones I've got to missiles, torpedoes, um, hell, there are optics that go on guns now that use semiconductors that come out of Taiwan. The simple fact of the matter is that almost anything you have that has any level of computing power has semiconductors, and more than 50% of the semiconductors on the planet are produced in Taiwan and in Taiwan alone. And also, the smallest, most capable processors that are produced are only produced in Taiwan. Now, they've done some things to add some different fabrication facilities and other parts of the world, but by and large, Taiwan has been very clever about keeping all those foundries and fabrication facilities right there in Taiwan. And the reason for that is because it's basically like the spice in Dune. It's only If it's only manufactured in one place, that place is suddenly super important, and you can't afford to be too willy-nilly with just rocking up there and invading it. Even China has to get all their semiconductors from Taiwan, or the vast majority of them. So... This is why you haven't seen an overtly aggressive invasion of Taiwan at this point. This is why the U.S. is so hell-bent on selling Taiwan weapons and 
preventing China from getting a little too up in the weeds in that part of the world. Okay. Now, that being said, even with the chip foundries being as incredibly, and they are, they're billions of dollars to manufacture and it takes years and there's just all this technology that Taiwan keeps a tight grip on and all of this. But but even with that, the general sense from a lot of people, especially in the military sphere, is that there will be a military option from China to invade Taiwan at some point in the near future. Hell, one U.S. Air Force general just last year said, in his professional opinion, China was going to invade Taiwan by 2025. And it would lead to a full-blown war between the U.S. and China, which, again, we strategically can't let those semiconductor foundries fall into someone else's hands. We have to do something about it. It's going to lead to war. So with that being said, 2025 is just right around the corner. Now, other estimates have said that a conflict is going to happen sometime before the end of the 2020s. Others have said it will happen for sure by 2050. But almost everyone agrees that at some point China is going to exercise the military option. Okay, so let's play a little game. If China invades Taiwan and the U.S. does go to war on some level of conflict, what's the smart play here? What is it that you do? Well, if you're the U.S., the easy, smart thing to do would be to block the Straits of Malacca, cut off the energy supply. 80% of China's energy comes through the Straits of Malacca. They're the largest consumer in the world. They have 1.4 billion people. That's obviously the thing to do. There's a reason the U.S. does these Freedom of Navigation Acts. There's a, I can't be the only one that's, that's come up with this thought, right? Now, knowing what we know about China, or at least what we can figure out, we know that China, like the U.S., has a strategic petroleum reserve designed to tide the country over in the event that there's war and there's disruption in shipments of energy. And supposedly, according to the experts, whomever they may happen to be, there's enough fuel in this Chinese strategic petroleum reserve to last for about 90 days with the country operating more or less at normal levels. After 90 days, you get into some pretty dicey water. We're talking mass rationing, shutting down non-essential and civilian services, and so on and so forth. Okay, so let's pretend this war happens. They invade Taiwan. The U.S. blockades the Straits of Malacca. That pretty much leaves you with effectively two legitimate options after the fact. The first option is you do your dead-level best to take over Taiwan free and clear, just get your troops in there, deal with it, and um, hope that you can get the U.S. to be cool with it and um, let you just keep it, right? Which is very unlikely for all the reasons, right? We, we know the semiconductor thing. We've talked about that. But if you're China, you're looking at Ukraine going, man, invading a chunk of land is not as easy as we thought it was. Okay. So the question is, in 90 days, since this is the magic calendar we're ticking down for this hypothetical, can China pull that off in a 90-day window? Well, Russia sure as shit has not been able to pull off fuck all in Ukraine in 90 days. Can China take Taiwan? Taiwan has a much more modern military. They buy all sorts of stuff from the U.S., and they've been on a basically war footing preparing for the day that China invades them for literally years, not to mention they've got alliances with the U.S. and, you know, the U.S.'s strategic ambiguity regarding, um, you know, how far it will go to defend Taiwan. So there's a lot of question marks there. So if you're China and you take option one, you have to get that invasion done very, very quickly. 
or your supplies are going to get choked off. And then the only option you have beyond that is to give in to U.S. demands for peace and pull out of Taiwan and just say, oopsie, we tried, it didn't work. But that's a lot of public embarrassment for the second most powerful country in the world to um, to shoulder. Nobody's going to like that. Nobody likes it. It's not, it's not yummy for China. Okay, so what's option number two? Well, option number two is to decide that the U.S. has blockaded the Straits of Malacca. You're currently trying uh, to actively invade Taiwan. What do you do? Well, if you're feeling ballsy, you actively engage the U.S. Navy and force your way through the blockade. You break the blockade by destroying the submarines and the ships that are enforcing it. Now, this will obviously cause a full-scale conflict with the U.S., and that is a bold play, especially when you're already actively engaged in trying to uh, subdue Taiwan. That's pretty brazen. Is it likely? Well, I don't know. But there is the third way. The third way is going to sound crazy at first, but hear me out. If you're China and you know that you have this weakness with the Straits of Malacca, if you're China and you know that you really want Taiwan for Christmas— everything else be damned. And you know the U.S. Is, is likely to choke off your energy supply, and you know that you only have 90 days if the U.S. successfully enacts this blockade, then maybe, just maybe, the smart play is to attack the United States Navy beforehand in a surprise. Scatter the U.S. fleet, sink as many other boats as you possibly can, ensuring that it will be weeks or months before they can do anything to reply, enabling you to get a head start on Taiwan. Now, I know what you're thinking. That sounds like the plot to World War II, and you'd be right. That's exactly what it is. It sounds ridiculous until you realize this has all happened before. In August of 1941, the United States cut off oil supplies to Japan in retaliation for Japan's imperial expansion and aggression against, ironically, China and various other Asian and Pacific countries. Japan has virtually no petrochemical natural resources of its own, no natural gas, no oil. It's almost entirely uh, dependent for any level of energy to have it imported from other places. And when the U.S. cut off supplies to Japan, they had a ticking clock on how long they were going to last before the Empire of Japan just ground to a halt. As much as Pearl Harbor sucked, as much as it was shitty to get a surprise attack, for the Empire of Japan, it was strategically the play. They weren't getting oil. The U.S. was choking them out, blockading and embargoing the oil going to them. The only option they had was to either abandon their aspirations of empire, which would be ridiculous, or to break the U.S. blockade effectively and sink as many U.S. naval ships as possible to ensure that this wasn't a problem for them. And that's the option they went with. Now, we all know how that went for Japan, but if you're China, you're stuck with a very similar situation. Yes, it's 80%, not 90% of all your energy that comes from someplace else, but believe me, that's more than enough to be highly, highly important. So do you pull a Pearl Harbor? Do you pull the most infamous date in history? It's eerily similar. It's eerily similar. That's what I'll say to that. 
Now, I'm not advising China to do a sneak attack on Pearl Harbor and try and sink the U.S. fleet. That Clearly, I'm not. But if you're the U.S., I am advising you to think through things as we move forward in this geopolitical situation because there's a certain whiff of history repeating itself that I'm sensing. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that the Pacific is also starting to look a lot like Europe right before World War I, in that there is a complex and growing web of alliances which affect China and the geopolitical situation. For instance, there's the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, also known as the Quad, which is a alliance, a security alliance between the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. Now, if China has derided this as the Asian version of NATO, and to an extent, they're right. It is a security alliance between a whole bunch of people that more or less border China and are there to contain them. And China doesn't like that. They start to feel kind of boxed in. And the U.S. knows what it's doing. That's precisely what it's doing. It's creating a defensive alliance to have allies in the event of a future conflict with China. Then you have the AUKUS, the A-U-K-U-S, which is an alliance between the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia, or, as I like to call it, the best parts of the Commonwealth. The U.S. isn't really in the Commonwealth, but you know what I mean. Anyway, the point is, between the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Japan, and India, there are a lot of powerful nations that have more or less committed to containing as best they can, Japanese expansion. And in the event of a conflict with China, this could lead to a massive global conflict if all these other countries join in and go to war with China. Meanwhile, China has, as they've declared it, no limits friendship with Russia. And of course, Russia, as we all know, is deeply allied slash about to become a union state with Belarus, so that would draw them into a conflict and so on and so forth, until you have World War I stakes played out over a World War II issue leading to the sequel, World War III. It's a possibility. So what's China doing to try and overcome these alliances? Well, they've done a few things. They've done a few things. So obviously they've invested heavily in their military. They've increased their military budget six times what it was 30 years ago. They're currently spending over $200 billion a year, which is more than the Soviet Union spent at the height of the USSR, even adjusted for inflation. Comparatively, that's a lot of jingle. Now, keep in mind <clears throat> that when Germany's economy finally overtook the British Empire's economy in 1910, it was only four years after that the First World War kicked off. And what do we know? China's right around the corner on that. Hmm. Interesting. So the next thing China's done, uh, aside from heavily investing in their military, is they're heavily asserting their claims on the South China Sea. They're building islands and military bases out there to give themselves logistical advantages in the event of a war um, and ensure that they have the tyranny of distance firmly on their side. I mean, keep in mind, China is across the Pacific Ocean, and if you've ever tried to swim it, I can assure you it is a long haul to get from California all the way to China. It's a bitch. You don't want to do it try and run supply lines across that, and you've got real issues. China knows this, and they're making the environment there in the South China Sea as defensive as possible for them, ensuring that it's a tough nut to crack in the event that a war actually happens. 
but easily the biggest thing that China is trying to do to absolve themselves of this oil and gas Achilles heel that they've grown is the Belt and Road Initiative, which I've talked about before, and I'll give you a very brief summary. It's China's plan to rearrange all global trade with China at the center by building a series of roads across Asia and China, from China through Asia, Africa, and Europe, and, and Russia, as well as a series of ports, all of which connect you back to mainland China. But the reason from an energy standpoint that this is especially important is it includes the construction of pipelines along the old Silk Road route in Central Asia. The first one was built in 2009. Now, this has issues for China as well, primarily because Central Asia, especially around the Caspian Sea and the Caucasus, has historically been a Russian sphere of influence. But Russia has been forced to let China expand into this area and grow its influence among these former Soviet socialist republics because, quite frankly, no one, you know, China is now the largest uh, buyer of Russian oil and natural gas. And so as Russia's largest customer that's basically bankrolling their endless dalliance in Ukraine, they're kind of being forced to just let China have their way with the Caucasus and that Central Asia region. Hell, it was only in 2019 when the first Russian pipeline into China was constructed and allowed them to double Russia's exports to China. And there are more in the works. My point here is... That China is going out of its way to build overland pipelines to the Middle East, to the Caucasus, to the Caspian, through the western parts of China. You know, the western part of China, that place where they're trying to round up and get rid of the Uyghurs, um, who generally are, you know, not big fans of the Chinese Communist Party, to ensure that this province is as safe as it can be, since it's going to be the new energy pipeline into China once everything's said and done, and thus not having to worry about the Straits of Malacca. The other thing to keep in mind is the Northern Sea Route, which um, in, its, in and of itself will also have some very serious impacts between China and Russia. So the Northern Sea Route is the sea route that goes basically from the Pacific coast of China there north rather than south and west, you know, through the Indian. It goes north through the Barents Straits to the north of Russia and around the top of Russia to the oil and gas fields that are along the northern coast of the Russian Russian coast up there in the Arctic. Now, for the most part, huge chunks of the year, this place is totally iced over and inaccessible, which means there's only certain windows of the year that you can get ships in and out of there. But say what you will about climate change, whether you think it's man-made and, and we're causing it by having too many badass cars, um, or whether you think it's um, just a matter of the you know natural cycles of ice age and non-ice age or whatever, regardless of your feelings, doesn't really matter. What does matter is that currently that northern sea route, that Arctic sea route, is having less time every year being iced over. That's that's the critical point here. It is it is inaccessible for fewer or for more and more months out of the year. And it's projected by the scientists, whether they're right or not, who knows. But what is projected is that within the next decade or so, that that will be a sea lane that is permanently open year-round to ships sailing through it. And what that means is this will allow Russia to supply virtually all of China's oil and gas using the northern sea route and just coming down that way. And that's 
a bit of a safer sea route for energy and just for trade in general. The other thing it does is with China's massive economy, it allows them to ship their goods to the west via the northern route rather than through the Straits of Malacca, which again can be cut off. It's much harder to cut off the um, the Barents Straits. Not impossible, but not as easily done because Russia controls the other side of that strait. So this is something that's going to be very interesting to keep an eye on. Not to mention you've got all the ports that China is paying to have built as part of the Ring and Road Initiative throughout the Indian Ocean. They've got ports they're working on in Pakistan. They've got the ones they've made in Sri Lanka. And China has this little habit of, you know, debt-trapping people. And by that I mean they go to countries that have cash-strapped, bad financial situations. They build these ports. They give them huge loans. And then when they can't repay the loans, they say, hey, we'll forgive them, but you've got to give us like a 99-year lease or a a uh, hundred-year lease or a two-hundred-year lease or whatever on owning these ports, and they're ours now. You know, basically, it's like the Church of Scientology. We're just going to have a billion-year contract to own this port into perpetuity, and all of a sudden, they've got these long-term military bases across this incredibly vital sea lane. Now, if you think that no country would be foolish enough to get tricked into that, it's already happened in Sri Lanka. Pakistan has had to go to the International Monetary Fund 12 times since the late 1980s because they keep defaulting on their sovereign debt. And guess who's there to bail them out this time? You guessed it. It's our good friends in China. So this is a thing that we have to be worried about. It's a thing that we have to be concerned about. At the end of the day, China has done a very good job of identifying their weakness, which is energy. And they're doing a really good job of playing the long game and finding solutions to not make that a weakness. So as we move forward, and as you watch all the things that China does, I would challenge you guys to keep that in the back of your mind, that everything they're doing comes back to just a handful of things. Getting Taiwan back, maintaining their prescience among uh, world trade, and overcoming their reliance on the Straits of Malacca, and... The fact that that's where 80% of their energy flows through. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. And um, that's what we got time for this evening. Uh, I will see you all in the next one. And in the meantime, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I, too, am desperately, desperately relying on the Straits of Malacca to get me to Dallas tomorrow, tonight. Ew. All right. Time to hit the road. I'll see you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.